All right, let's pray and walk through what we're doing. Heavenly Father, thank you for today again for the joy and privilege that it is to gather with your people and to uh, fellowship together and to look at your word. So give us a greater hunger for it. Uh, give us a greater understanding. Help me to communicate clearly. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last time we started into uh, the Minor Prophets, and just as a heads up, I'm not going to like go through Habakkuk tonight because that'd be like double duty, right? You're like, oh man, how much Habakkuk can we handle in one day? Uh, so don't, don't worry. Be like, I heard that already. Um, so last time we got together, we were looking at the 12. We talked about how it is all one book, right? But comprised of 12 different authors over a period of 300 years. The big thing, that the, the timing, remember, that we want to keep in mind is in relationship to the exile. So pre-exile, uh, and then um, during the exile and post-exile, right? So those are your, your timing, time frames. Uh, and then you had that alternation between prophets to the north, the south, the north, the south, until the north is uh, removed. And then all that you have left is to the kingdom in, in the south. Um, if I didn't put in your notes the outline from the last books that we looked at last time, but just shortly, Hosea... The theme was that of the Lord's covenantal love for his people. Remember, Hosea is picturing uh, how Israel has played the whore, and so he goes and marries a prostitute, demonstrating the Lord's covenantal love for his wayward people. Joel was all about the the coming day of the Lord. Uh, Of course, the day of the Lord, again, is a a day of judgment, and he used that contemporary uh, judgment of locusts that had come upon the land to picture that. Amos, uh, we called the Lord roars against sin. So there he's prophesying against a a sinful and a uh, luxuriant Israel that is is living in sin. Obadiah was to uh, the nation of Edom, so the descendants of Esau. And because of their sin against uh, Israel, their being a thorn in the backside, so to speak, of the nation of Israel, the Lord was going to destroy them. And then finally, Jonah, remember, was a a prophecy to a Gentile nation, Yahweh's mercy to them, but Jonah's lack of mercy, right, towards them, okay? So that picks us up in Micah. And Micah, I've entitled, Yahweh's witness to Israel's sin and the coming removal of that sin. So Micah's time frame, uh, same time as the prophet Isaiah, and he's a prophet to the kingdom of Judah, but his message also extends further than that because it goes to the, to the northern kingdoms as well. Uh, according to your chart, I think you'll see on there that he ministered from where, somewhere about 40, uh, 50 years, actually, 737 to 690 BC, so during the reigns of Ahaz and Hezekiah. And again, if you recall from when we went through Isaiah, Isaiah had those interactions with Ahaz, who was a fool, and Hezekiah, who was a good and godly king. Um, it was, again, under Micah's ministry that the northern kingdom would have been destroyed by the Assyrians. Uh, Micah is interesting, in a, like it, it is similar in style, I would say, to reading Isaiah in, in the terms of jumping between present and future realities, kind of that bouncing back and forth thing. Um, looks at the coming judgment of exile, but then also sees a restored future kingdom, right? And so he just sees the whole new creation as, as one package, okay? Um, the main emphasis of the book would be the detailing of the nation's sin, but placing hope for the removal of that sin in a coming Davidic ruler, 
Okay, so again, like, <clears throat> like Isaiah, he's going to have pointed prophecies that are specifically tied to Jesus Christ. So we'll get to, especially in like chapter 5. Okay, first three chapters are destruction for transgression in chapter 1, oppression in chapter 2, and sinful leadership in chapter 3. Uh, you notice in chapter 1, verse 2, this is the Lord... Uh, his witness against Israel's sin. Remember, Isaiah started the same way as well, where the Lord is is showing up as a witness against the nation of Israel. But he says, Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Okay, so like Isaiah, Micah as well calls people uh, and calls witnesses to testify to Israel's covenant breaking. Their infidelity, okay? Um, It was Isaiah that was calling heaven and earth to witness. Which prophet was it that we went through that called that the Lord was witness? My mind is mud after a while, so I have to go back. But there's one that that began that way as well. But Micah begins this way. So chapter 2 and 3, he's listing their sins. Uh, If you look at like chapter 2 and verse 2, especially their sins of oppression, uh, their devising of evil schemes, Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 talks about the rulers who love evil and hate good. Okay, so this is the the sins of the nation. Then we move to chapters 4 and 5, and we get to restoration for the nation through a shepherd ruler. Uh, If you look at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, so just as the Lord is a witness in judgment, so he is a witness in in restoration, he will forgive their sins. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and the people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. You know, just reading that, that sounds almost identical to Isaiah chapter 4, I believe. I got I to gotta look. Actually, Isaiah chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. I think it is almost the exact same quotation. Sorry, I didn't catch that sooner. But that's really fascinating, is it not? That Micah says basically the exact same thing as Isaiah does. So the Lord is witness to this, this restoration. We get to chapter 5, and we have this, this promise of a uh, deliverer. And of course, this is where we, we see this fulfilled in Jesus. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth me, one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, and the majesty of the name of the Lord is God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So much isn't the problem of the nation of Israel with the arrival of Jesus is that they don't, they were anticipating the full coming of his kingdom right then and there. Right, So uh, James Hamilton commenting on this, he said, this remarkable prophecy seems to indicate that God will give them up until the birth of a ruler whose origin is from of old, from ancient of days is born. So right, give them up into judgment and exile until the coming of Christ. 
This would seem to point to the dawning of the restoration of God's people at the birth of this promised ruler. And it seems likely that when he cited Micah 5.1, Matthew had the broader context of this prophecy in view. Until then, judgment. After judgment, Israel will defeat Assyria, Micah 5, 4 through 5, and the remnant of Israel will be delivered from idolatry by Yahweh himself. So again, the idea is that with the coming of Jesus, and this is what they missed, he's, he's bringing the new creation in, but it's not all at one time, right? It's the beginning of it, and then it will reach its full consummation one day. And this is something it seems like the Jews really stumbled over. They thought it'd come in right away. Then chapter 6, we see destruction for not doing what the Lord has required. Uh, Verses 3 through 4 of chapter 6, the Lord is describing their sin as something he has witnessed from their inception as a nation. Uh, So he talks about, Oh my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. So they've sinned against the Lord for their entire existence. Verse 8, this is what they've been told to do. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And then chapter 7, we get the cry of a faithful remnant. So we get verses like this, chapter 7, verse 18, uh, right at the end of the passage. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. So this is the cry of a faithful person, right, that believes the word of the Lord. All right, then let's go to Nahum. Nahum is the Lord's judgment against Assyria. So remember, Assyria is the dominant world power uh, that is going to exile that northern kingdom. And Jonah has already gone to Assyria by the time that Nahum is written. So this is about 100 years uh, after Jonah. Um, And this is the final pronouncement of judgment on Assyria. So it's, they repented when Jonah came and preached, but they didn't stay repentant, right? They turned back to their, their evil ways. So this is the final pronouncement of judgment and their soon overthrow. Um, at this point as well, okay, Assyria has been used by the Lord to carry off into captivity that, uh, the northern nation of Israel. So Jonah is writing about 650 BC, or not Jonah, sorry, Nahum writing about 650 BC. And at this same time, again, Manasseh, we mentioned this morning is ruling in Judah, really bad, really evil King. Okay. Um, The theme of Nahum then is the Lord's judgment against arrogant Assyria and the triumph of Judah. Um, One of the things with these uh, these prophecies that deal with other nations we want to remember is that it's demonstrating the Lord's control and rule over all the nations, right? No nation is uh, apart from his rule and authority, uh, just as we read in the Proverbs and in Daniel, right? He raises up kings and he takes them down. And we see that happening here. Um, chapter 1, the God who brings judgment on Nineveh. Look at verses 12 through 15 of chapter 1. Uh, the point here is that the Lord has afflicted Israel with the Assyrians, but now he will afflict Assyria. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. 
Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. Okay, so this is speaking about Assyria, right? No longer shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your, make your grave for you are vile. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Did you notice in verse 15, do you recognize that prophecy from another prophet? Behold the mountains. Isaiah as well, Isaiah 52. It's interesting, right? These prophets referencing earlier prophets. Um, so it's interesting that he's quoting this here while announcing this, the destructive destruction of Nineveh. But in announcing the destruction of Nineveh, he's promising the salvation of Judah, right? That's, what, that's what's going on here. James Hamilton again said, the good news here results from the salvation of God's people established by the judgment of their enemies. So ultimately, God's people will be delivered as their enemies are destroyed. Chapter two, Nineveh is destroyed to restore the majesty of Jacob. Look at verse two. Um, for the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. But ultimately, again, through judgment on the enemies comes salvation. Then look at chapter 3. And here we see the reason for judgment on Nineveh and what that judgment will look like as it is described. Woe to the bloody city, verse 1, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. And then it will go on and describe what this will, well, you see like verse 3. Horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies, right? So they're completely annihilated is the picture that is put forth there. Um, it's Nahum like Obadiah. If you remember, Obadiah offers no hope to the nation of Edom, right? There's no salvation, so the same thing here with Assyria. It is just judgment. This is the end. The, the cup of wrath is filled up, and now it is poured out upon them. Does Nahum mention that? I don't think so. It's a short book, so you could read through all three chapters in the next five minutes and then report back to us if you find something. I don't, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't, I don't recall. That did not stand out to me as I was, as I was reading through it. Um, yeah, but a good question. It is interesting, right, that he wouldn't mention the fact that they had repented. Yeah. I think it's about 100 years. So... It's a little while. Yeah. All right. Nahum, uh, Habakkuk. Again, we already, we spent all morning in Habakkuk, so we're not going to, uh, to really walk through this, except for just, I gave you an outline of it, which is kind of what I walked through uh, th- this morning. Um, Yeah, I don't think I have anything else that I would really add other than you can, you can read the outline uh, yourself and do that. Then we can, we'll, we'll move through it quicker rather than rehashing things that, if you didn't get it this morning, then you can go back and, and listen to the sermon from this morning, okay? Because I kind of walked through what the, the content of the book is. Let's go to Zephaniah then. 
Zephaniah is another book about the day of the Lord. And this is the day of the Lord will bring about the restoration of the nations. Okay, so Zephaniah is, we're, we're moving forward in history. So if Hosea was in the early, or in the 700s, I think it was. Now Josiah, or, uh, Zephaniah is about 627 B.C. Uh, so Zephaniah is in the line of royalty. He's the great-grandson, or great-great-grandson of Hezekiah. Remember Hezekiah? I love the phrase, it's in, I think, 1 Kings 18, that says, there's none like Hezekiah before or after who walked in the ways of the Lord, right? That's a, what a fantastic epitaph to have on your tombstone, right? Um, so Zephaniah is, is prophesying, prophesying to Judah, and if you go to 1 Kings 17, it talks about the demise, or the fall of the northern kingdom, but in that same point, it also is pointing the finger at Judah, and it's saying to Judah that never learned the lessons of her sister Israel. And so it continued to walk in the ways of the nations. And so Zephaniah is a sad prophecy in that way because it's dealing with this uh, very issue. It is calling Judah to learn the lesson of Israel and to repent, but they don't. And so there are calls in this book to, you know, if, if you repent, the Lord will relent of the disaster that he will do. But if they do not repent, they can be certain what is coming for them because they've already seen it happen, right, in the nation of Israel. Um, D.W. Baker, I think this is in the ESV study Bible, which again, I, I throw, that study Bible is really helpful. If you don't have one and you're looking for a good study Bible, go get the ESV study Bible. So he had this, this note that I thought was good. He said, in spite of having seen the destruction and exile of her sister Israel a generation or two previously, Judah refuses to turn back as a nation to her covenant obligations toward God. The reign of pious Josiah provides an ideal op- opportunity to make this move because you remember that Josiah, like, he reinstituted the Passover. They found the book of the law. He tore his garments when he heard, like, wow, the wrath of God is upon us because we've not kept, kept this law. So, like, here's a glimmer of hope for the nation. Here's an opportunity to return. Um, God, through Zephaniah, wants to clarify the decision that lies before Judah and indeed before all the other nations, along with the consequences of that decision. God is calling for Judah's punishment because she has already shown herself sinful. If she should repent and abandon her evil, perhaps God will forgive. And you see that in chapter 2 and verse 3. Okay, So Zephaniah's theme centers around the judgment of the Lord that will fall not only on Judah and Jerusalem, but all the nations if they do not repent. Now, Zephaniah, the other thing too, is the last of the pre-exilic prophets. Okay, after Zephaniah, the final three prophets are all uh, post-exilic, after the exile. Okay? So chapter 1 is the coming day of the Lord for Judah and Jerusalem. And it's interesting, if you look at chapter 1, verses 2 through 6, it describes the coming judgment as a form of decreation. So if you go read in, in Genesis 1 and see the days of creation, it's described the same way but in reverse right? So I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast, which is created on day six. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens, day five. Uh, I will sweep away uh, and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. Uh, So that was day four. Or no, let's see. Yeah. No, day five and six, I think were birds and fish. Uh, but anyway, it's describing, it's, it's the reversal of creation in judgment. 
Verse four, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal in the name of the idolatrous priests, along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of heaven, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Okay? So this is the, the judgment that is coming, and he also describes here why. It's idolatry, right? Even your, your priests who are worshiping in the temple, they're also worshiping Milcom, right? So they're adulterous in that way. Then he talks about the day of the Lord. Look at chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. It says, The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. Chapter two then moves on to describe the day of the Lord that's gonna come upon the nations. So you see chapter two, verse four, uh, describing this day of the Lord on Gaza. Verse five, the inhabitants of the seacoasts. Verses 8 and 10, Moab shall become like Sodom. And then look at verse 11. I thought this was uh, neat, right? Where he says, the Lord will be awesome against them, right? So they're going to sit back and go, wow, right? Yahweh truly is great. But I just, that's a, that's, isn't that a unique phrase? The Lord will be awesome against them. Because we think about like God is awesome. Yeah, but here how it's describing him, I think is, is really awesome. Verses 12 and 13 describe the judgment against Cush and Assyria. And then chapter 3, judgment brings salvation. So again, there, there is hope for the nation of Israel. The day of the Lord will bring about a restoration. So if you look at verses 8 through 10, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord from beyond the rivers of Cush. My worshipers, the daughters, daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. So again, this sounds like all the prophets, really, right? That they, they talk about the day of the Lord that brings judgment, but then there's this multinational group of people returning to Zion and praising the Lord and bringing him sacrifice, like worshiping all uh, him. So all the nations flowing to, to him again. That is Zephaniah. So let's go to Haggai. Any questions so far? Okay. All right, Haggai, uh, we've entitled The Glory of the Second Temple. So he is the first of these three exilic prophets. So when we get to uh, really close to the end of our study and we're looking at Ezra and Nehemiah, that's the same time frame as Haggai, Zechariah, and then Malachi is even a little later than that. Okay, so the history at this point is that 70-year exile that was prophesied by Jeremiah has come to an end. They have been freed. The Jews have been freed by Cyrus to go back to the land. You remember that that was prophesied in Isaiah 45. And so now the Jews have gone back into the land. And so Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi are all now ministering back in the land with this returned remnant of the Jews. 
Um, and the, the post-exilic prophets do a couple of things. They first show us that the 70 years of exile has been filled up. Uh, it was in Jeremiah 29 that 70 years was promised. And if I understand the dating correctly, uh, they would start with in 605 BC, which was the first uh, deportation from Judah. And then the return is somewhere between 538 and 535 BC. So I believe it was 538 BC that Cyrus makes the decree and it takes them a while to get back to the land. So 605 to 535 is 70 years. Okay, so that's, that's saying that. So the, the prophets are saying this period of judgment has been filled up. Secondly, they're showing us that the day of the Lord uh, that's been spoken of has come, but yet there's a greater day of the Lord still to come, right? So what Zephaniah is talking about, that, you know, you know when we're reading in, in Zephaniah and it's talking about a day of darkness and a day of gloom and all those, that would be the destruction of Jerusalem in 586. And that's all pointing to another day of the Lord that is, that is yet to come. Haggai is writing uh, during the reign of Darius, and he's writing around 520 to 518. Uh, and again, time-wise, you go from the end of 2 Chronicles to Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. You throw Esther in there as well. So Haggai's main concern is this. It is the rebuilding of the temple. Remember, uh, at the end of 2 Kings, Nebuchadnezzar comes in and destroys the temple. Jerusalem is, is laid to ru uh, ruins. And then they take all the, the furniture out. And that's where in Daniel, remember, Belshazzar gets up and he's having a feast. He brings in all the temple uh, dishes and the hand writes on the wall, your days are numbered. So all of that is gone and they're allowed to take it back in after uh, Cyrus returns them to the land. Uh, but the people are back in the land, and they're rebuilding the temple. And this would again happen under the ministry of Ezra and Nehemiah. But the problem was, and Nehemiah really deals with this, uh, the people stop building because they face opposition from the inhabitants of the land. So Haggai's main concern is to encourage the people to continue the work of, of rebuilding the temple. So chapter 1, verses 1 through 15, we see it, or I've entitled it, It's Time to Rebuild the House of the Lord. Uh, Haggai is pushing back against the people who have settled into a complacency as they're back in the land. So look at verses two through eight. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. So for Israel coming back and rebuilding the temple would have demonstrated that they kind of learned the lesson of the exile, right? That they, they should be placing the Lord first and that by their not doing this work, they're kind of, they kind of miss the point. So Haggai is here to encourage them. Uh, you're living in houses. Why have we not rebuilt the temple yet? Okay, verses 10 through 11 of chapter one, their neglect uh, of rebuilding the temple had consequences. 
Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. So it's almost as if the same issues (laughs) are pervasive within the nation, right? And the same judgment, because this was what the Lord promised. When you disobey, like there will be consequences like drought, land won't, won't produce for you. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, the Lord is with you to build and will make this temple more glorious. So look at the second half of verse 4 and verse 5. The Lord is reminding them that he will aid them. The Lord says, work for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst, fear not. Right, so here again, he's even calling back, even though you've gone through all the judgment of exile, that covenant I've made, I've not forsaken that, right? I'm still with you. I am in your midst. I will enable you to do it. Um, the other thing, this is, so look at uh, chapter two, verse nine. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace declares the Lord of hosts. Why is the latter glory of this house greater than the former temple? Because ultimately this is the temple that through Herod is rebuilt or is made grander. And this is where Jesus ministers, right? This is where where Jesus comes. Um, If I find it, Gleason Archer, a commentator, he said this, he said, It should be remembered that much of the Mosaic Constitution presupposed the carrying on of worship in such a sanctuary, and the failure to complete a suitable house of worship could lead to a paralyzing of the religious life of the Jewish community. Okay, because again, think, like the temple is like the central place for worship. It's the center of their, their practices. So it said, then he continues, it should be understood that the second temple was to play a very important role in the history of redemption, for it was in this temple, as remodeled and beautified by Herod the Great, that the Lord Jesus Christ was to carry on his Jerusalem ministry. It was, of course, his advent that fulfilled the promise of Haggai 2.9, the glory of this latter house shall be greater than the former. So their coming back into the land and rebuilding the temple had redemptive purposes, right? Because ultimately Jesus will come into this temple. Chapter 2, verses 10 through 9, the people have not known the blessing of the Lord because of their uncleanness. If you look at verses 13 and 14, uh, they were not following the cleanliness laws as they should have. And then the last one, and this is when I figured out what this was, chapter 2, verses 20 through 24, I was like, oh, wow, that's really cool. Uh, the Lord chooses Zerubbabel as a signet ring. So Zerubbabel was a descendant of David, right? And, and this goes back to the whole thing of uh, Jehoiachin being taken into Babylon and being exalted, given a good name and all that. So Zerubbabel would be a descendant of his. And now Zerubbabel is back in the land as a ruler, right? And so the Lord gives this prophecy where he says to Haggai, I have made Zerubbabel a signet ring, okay? Now, a signet ring would connote royalty, right? Because a king would have his seal that he would stamp like a wax seal with, uh, so he, he, it would be his image. Well, um, what this imagery seems to be showing is that through Zerubbabel, 
The Lord is impressing, impressing upon the world that the Lord is not done with the lineage of David, right? So that the, the line of David, the promise of a king to come through his line continues on. And Zerubbabel being called my signet ring is kind of evidence of that fact. So I, read, I was like, oh, that's what that means. Because when I first read that, I was like, what in the world? A signet ring? What is this? So just know this is a promise that says the line of David is not yet dead. And I believe in Matthew's genealogy, he records Zerubbabel in there. Of course, I went all the way to Revelation in order to find Matthew. What am I doing here? Uh, yes, Matthew 1, 12 uh, Jeconiah, Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. So there you go, okay? Neat, neat connection, okay? Um, then we go to Zechariah. Zechariah may be the most challenging prophetic book by far. And after going through it, I was like, oh, it'd actually be fun to just teach through Zechariah sometime. But it's, I, it might be the most challenging one, okay? Okay. Um, so we'll see what we can, we can see if we can make any sense of it. Uh, so he's another post-exilic prophet. He was a priest. Uh, he would have returned to the land under that decree of Cyrus. He and Haggai were contemporaries, so they're both ministering in the land. But they both have different reasons to encourage the people to rebuild the temple. Okay, so Haggai is dealing with your contemporary issue in the sense of like, you don't have... Your, your land is not growing, you have drought, you're not worshiping the Lord properly, right? You have the unclean thing going on. Well, Zechariah has a more future orientation in mind as far as the rebuilding of the temple, okay? It's, it's based on what the Lord is yet to do in, in the future. Um, I think what makes Zechariah really challenging um, is he has it's so especially chapters one through six essentially are, are a series of eight different visions, and they're kind of some people have have outlined the book as chiastic again. So you have vision one in chapter one, and then a, another vision in chapter six, and those two correspond to each other. So it's hard to take each one individually. You kind of need to look at them together. So the ones in chapter one and chapter six are the same, and then one in chapter two and chapter five are kind of the same, and then chapter three and chapter four are the center of that chiasm. Now, I didn't outline the book that way because I thought, I didn't see that. <laughs> right? So it seemed kind of disingenuous to be like, look at this fantastic outline that I, that I came up with when I didn't, right? So uh, I, I've given you the outline that I came up with. But I, when I was reading other people's much more scholarly work, I was like, oh, that kind of helps make sense. And that explains why this is so challenging to get, okay? But we'll see, see what, we can, what we can do. Again, Zechariah's theme is an encouragement to restore the temple because the Lord has not forsaken his people. The work of restoration and the work of the priesthood all points forward to a day when a new king priest will come and will establish Zion and will atone for sin forever. And as we go through Zechariah, Zechariah has a ton of different uh, verses that are all applied to Jesus. And you'll read that and you'll be like, oh, I know exactly what he is, what he's talking about. Okay. So in chapters one through six, these eight visions, 
this uh, talk about the future coming of a king priest returning to a cleansed Zion and a temple, and that's what we see in these these first visions. Chapter one or verses one through six is an is an address first to the exiles. Um, He's saying, return to the Lord and be not like your father. So Israel may feel abandoned because of the exile, but they need to understand the Lord is just in his actions. So look at verses four through six. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants and and the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts has purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. Isn't that interesting, right? Like, uh, what's in it, Isaiah 2? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And Zechariah is saying, you guys are a testament of that. Your fathers are a testament of that. The word of the Lord has come, come true. Okay? So then chapter 1, verse 6 through chapter 2, verse 13, I've entitled The Restoration and Habitation of Jerusalem and Judgment on the Nations Who Lifted Themselves Up Against Judah to Scatter Them. So a very long title, but it kind of gives you an idea of of what's going on. Again, James Hamilton uh, talks about these night visions, and he says this. He says, These night visions portray Yahweh as surveying the land and conquering it empowering his people to cleanse the land of wickedness and celebrating the restoration of the land and, the upholding, the, and upholding the law. And with all this, Yahweh provides a cleansed priest and an effective ruler. So if you look at like chapter 2, verses 10 through 13, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. It sounds kind of like Habakkuk 2.20. Be silent, for the Lord is in his holy temple. Chapter 3 describes Joshua, the high priest, being cleansed. Um this is, you know, as, as Hamilton said in that quote I read earlier, this is picturing a, a cleansed priesthood, right? That the land is being prepared for Yahweh to come back to it. Uh, look at verses 8 and 9. This is through this individual, the branch. This is a messianic phrase. The, so what Zechariah is saying is that through this individual, the branch, I will come and remove iniquity. So the second half of verse 8, Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Okay? Um, Look at chapter 4. Here we have Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, who we saw in Haggai as well. And I think the the point that you should see, like in verses 6 through 10, is that, Zerubbabel is an effective ruler, and of course we're looking forward to the greatest ruler, ultimately, who will be, who will be Jesus. Uh, the visions in chapter 5 and chapter 6, I've broken them down into these three. Visions concerning covenant breaking, chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Wickedness, chapter 5, 
verses five through 11, and Yahweh's rule of the whole earth. And these are the one, the vision of the flying scroll, the woman in the basket. And these are, they're kind of different. Like you just read that and you're like, I don't fully get that. And so you got to do, do a little bit of, of work. That's why I say I'd really like to just study Zechariah just for the sake of studying Zechariah because I don't feel like I have a great handle on it. Uh, chapter 6, verses 9 through 15, the future king priest. This is significant. When we think of Jesus, uh, he fulfilled three offices. What were they? Prophet, priest, and king, right? And so all the Old Testament prophets combine the future messianic ruler into these capacities. Well, uh, Zechariah seems to do a pretty good job here in verses 9 through 15 because it shows that the branch is not only a future king, but is also a priest. And so what he describes here is the placing of a crown in the temple, which is supposed to, to show that the future ruler who returns to Zion is a priest king, right? And even David was a priest king. When he goes and he eats the, the bread, uh, when he's fleeing from Saul, right? He's functioning essentially in a priestly role. So Jesus is a priest king. Uh, chapter 7, we see exile for the ethical sins of the nation. Point is, don't continue in these sins returning exiles. This is why you were, were removed from the land. Don't continue to, to do those. Um, and there is a, a question about fasting that is brought to Zechariah, and that's what brings up this whole discussion. Chapter 8, the Lord's purpose to bring good to Jerusalem. Look at verses 2 and 3 of chapter 8. The Lord will choose and return to Zion. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. And then chapters 9 through 14 are another chiasm. Uh, if you want to read more about that, I could get you some information on that and you could just go read up on it on yourselves. Um, but these final chapters anticipate the return of a meek, humble Davidic king who will return to the land, defeat Israel's enemies, bringing salvation and bringing in the new creation. And again, this is where we really have some of these passages that as we walk through, we're like, that's Jesus, right? Uh, So verses one through eight of chapter nine are oracles against Israel's enemies. And then chapter nine, and I skipped some, it should actually start in verse nine and go through 10, 12, the king who saves and shows compassion. Look at uh, chapter nine, Uh, verse 9 rejoice greatly O daughter of Zion shout aloud O daughter of Jerusalem behold your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey well how did that get fulfilled right and Jesus entering into Jerusalem what we call Palm Sunday um you look at what, as well as uh, chapter 9, verses 16 and 17. And uh, chapter 10, verse 6. So this is all describing the work of this king. So like in ten six, I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. Ten ten, I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. This is all, again, the work of this coming 
Davidic king ruler. Chapter 11 is the shepherd over the flock doomed to slaughter. And this is a a quite difficult passage. And I was glad to read other people that are like, this is a difficult passage to interpret. We don't entirely understand it. So I'm going to try and summarize it this way. Uh, Remember, Israel's leaders were often referred to as shepherds. Um, I think it's in Ezekiel 34, right? That there is judgment on the wicked shepherds. They didn't care for the flock. Instead, they ate the flock. And even like, what does Jesus come along and say? I am the good shepherd. And then pastors are to be, pastor elders are to be shepherds like the great shepherd Jesus. So this is a, a, a term that's used of leaders. Um, and what happens in this vision is that Zechariah acts out the part of a shepherd who rescues the sheep. So you see this in 11.7. So I became the shepherd of the flock doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. But he himself is rejected in verse 9. So he leaves the sheep to devour themselves in verse 9. Verses 12 and 13, he receives his wages, 30 pieces of silver. Okay, and this... Uh, so I took and threw the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Well, that's ultimately, we see that with Judas, right? Uh, and then verses 15 and 17, the sheep are then left to a worthless shepherd. Um, I'm going to read here from Jason DeRucci. Uh, he says, and, and this, is, this is part of the thing too that makes so we can read this much of the, the prophecy, but it doesn't stop there because this idea of the shepherd and what he's going to do continues on. So I'll read what Deruti writes because he, he puts it more succinctly than I could. He says, in accordance with God's purposes, Yahweh's people reject, slaughter, and pierce his shepherd. Because you'll see like in chapter 12, verse 10, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, weep bitterly over him as one who weeps over a firstborn. Well, again, that's Jesus that's being spoken of there. So Yahweh's people reject, slaughter, and pierce his shepherd. And by this means, the Lord opens a fountain of cleansing from sin and uncleanness. God's shepherd represents the people dying on their behalf. And through his death, and though his death will result in their scattering, he will call on the Lord on the people's behalf, and God will answer. So this whole shepherd imagery and what happens to the shepherd being rejected is all meant to picture Christ ultimately, right? And that's that chapter 12. When they look on him whom they have pierced, ultimately that is in Jesus. Chapter 12 through chapter 13, I've entitled, The Lord Will Save Jerusalem and the Nation Will Be Cleansed Through the House of David. And ultimately this leads to the end of their idolatry, right? Because when, when Jesus is finally king, ruling, Uh, all the nations, Israel will recognize him as their true king and they won't worship idols anymore, right? So that will ultimately come about when when they are saved. And then chapter 14 is, I've entitled, The Day of the Lord, which brings in the new creation. Look at verse nine. I love this, this verse. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one, right? He's going to be king over all the earth. There's not going to be any rival. There will be no rebellion against him. Everyone will recognize that the Lord is king. Okay? That's Zechariah. Your assignment is to now go and study it diligently, and then you can 
communicate it more clearly to me next time, okay? All right, let's finish it up with Malachi, and then we will be, we will be done. So Malachi is Israel's continued failings after exile and the hope of restoration. So Malachi is the last prophet the Lord sends to his people. And after Malachi, 400 years of silence until the next prophet. Who comes on the scene after Malachi? John the Baptist, right? Yep, so we have that 400 years of silence after Malachi. Now he is writing about 100 years after the people have come back into the land. Okay, so if you think they come back to the land, uh, 535, 100 years later, about 435, Malachi is writing. And this is the same time that Nehemiah would have been in the land. Malachi is sad because it shows how little change and progress the nation has made since their inception. And this goes back, remember, all the way back in Deuteronomy, and Moses is saying to the people, you need a new heart. You need circumcised hearts. You need circumcised ears. So here we have thousands of years of history of the Lord working with his people, and they can't change themselves, right? They need new hearts. So that's the, that's the glory of the new covenant, right? That, that the Lord fulfills that promise and, and gives his people his spirit and writes the law upon their hearts so they can obey him and love him. So Malachi is showing even after the judgment of exile, they still need a heart transplant. They need a heart change, okay? So Malachi's prophecy is continuing to indict Israel for many of the same sins that the previous prophets had spoken about, even after the judgment of exile. Malachi is a little bit different. It's probably more like Habakkuk in a way, uh, but not quite. It's conversational. And so here the Lord makes a statement, and then the response from the people is put forward, right? So we have these repeated refrains uh, where the Lord will say something like in chapter 1, Verse two, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Right, so really these questions are, are, are questioning as what the Lord said really true, right? Um, they're, they're responding to what that is. And then the Lord responds further uh, with commentary on his statement or the indictment he, he makes. Um, Malachi is writing to a group of people who thought that the day of the Lord that had been promised by Haggai and Zechariah would come and it would be any time arriving. They had not anticipated a delay of nearly 100 years, right? They thought, hey, when the Lord visits us in exile and brings us back to the land, boom, everything's going to be great again. And it's not, okay? Um, uh, I don't remember, uh, Jensen I can't think of his first name anyway. doesn't matter. He says, The days had become increasingly drab and dreary. It was a period of disappointment, disillusionment and discouragement, of blasted hopes and broken hearts. The Jews' faith and worship were eroding, and their daily lives showed it. They were hypercritical of God's ways. Okay? So the Lord has been faithful to his people, right? He's visited them, and many Jews have come back into the land. Um, the temple's been rebuilt. Sacrifices are taking place. Nehemiah is going to show up and help rebuild the walls of the, the city. But there are obstacles to the nation flourishing, and it's them. They're, they're the problem, okay? Um, Paul House said, This prophecy contends that post-exilic Israel will flourish only when the people are renewed by a fresh vision of Yahweh's love for them and a recommitment of their willingness to love, honor, and serve the Lord. So chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, we have the Lord's love for Israel. Um, and here, really, the people don't think that the Lord loves them anymore. 
Um, and so what the Lord does is show how he has brought them back and how he's restoring them. And he contrasts this with Jacob and Esau. And he's basically saying, look at Edom. They don't exist anymore. Jacob I've chosen, Esau I have hated. They don't exist. I love you. I will continue to love you. Uh, Edom, you see at verse three, is described as being like Sodom, being like jackals in the desert, right? So there's nothing, nothing left to them. Um, 1, 6 through 2, 9, we see the Lord loves Israel, but Israel's priests do not love the Lord and honor him rightly. Um, remember, uh, Yahweh is Israel's father and Israel is his son, right? So think of the phrase, out of Egypt, I called my son. Um, and the priests do not fear the Lord and they demonstrate their lack of fear of the Lord in how they offer the sacrifices and what sacrifices they offer. So like one twelve, they find the Lord's commands regarding worship wearisome. Uh, look at chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. They don't minister like Levi who feared the Lord and stood in awe of him. Okay, So they do not love the Lord. Their actions demonstrate it. Chapter 2, verse 10 through 3, 5. Judah does not love the Lord, therefore they pollute the covenant. Yahweh will refine them. Uh, you see in chapter 2, verse 13, there's a question. Uh, why the Lord does not accept their offerings? And the Lord's response is that he was witness to the covenant that they entered into with him, but they have been faithless to that covenant. So again, this goes back to the covenant at Sinai. And the Lord, well, like we saw was in, in Micah, right? The Lord is bearing witness to the covenant and he's bearing witness to their breaking, their breaking of it. So when they don't, uh, they offer a sacrifice, the Lord does not accept it. The Lord says, it's because you've not obeyed the covenant. Look at verse 17. They have wearied the Lord with their calling evil good in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord will come and judge them and refine them. Then we see the last section, 316 through 18. This is the Lord's unchanging character towards the repentant and the wicked. So uh, verses 6 through 15, you see a call to repentance. They are to be obedient from the heart. They need to obey, uh, not, just, not just externally, don't just modify behavior, but you need a changed heart. And then you see verses 16 through 18, those who will obey this way are the ones who fear the Lord. Um, verse 16, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Finally, uh, the last chapter, the wicked will know the Lord's unchanging character in judgment and on the day of the Lord. Uh, and chapter 4 is really showing us that what the nation needs is a heart change. And this is showing us when that heart change will begin, okay? Um, talks about uh, like verse, verse four, that the people are instructed to keep the law of Moses and to look for the prophet who comes in the spirit and power of Elijah and who will turn the hearts of their children to their fathers. And ultimately that comes with John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. The people need a heart change. How's that heart change gonna come about? 
through Jesus, right? And the, the bringing of the new covenant. So, uh, and that would begin, right, in, in a way, here's the, the coming day of the Lord. Jesus is going to bring it, ultimately, uh, is what he's going to do.